0: Would your word pierce our hearts? Lord, would you show us what you want us to know? Would you sanctify us to be like Christ? Lord, I pray for your special help for me today to communicate the word correctly and accurately and for your glory. Let me not say anything that would be of myself, but what would come out of my mouth be only of you, Lord. In your name, amen. So we're going to be in the Old Testament in the book of Deuteronomy. So if you have a Bible, I really encourage you, to open it up to Deuteronomy chapter 29, we're going to be looking at just one verse, Deuteronomy 29, 29. A pretty easy verse to remember because it's same chapter, same verse. So why don't you just put your finger there? Now, some of you guys have pl- likely heard the buzz about uh, the Defense Department's report that they're going to give to Congress about UFOs. Uh, <laughs> there's been a lot of buzz about this in the news. Uh, and this isn't a sermon about UFOs. This isn't a sermon about aliens or anything like that. Uh, so not about that at all. But I, I just think it's a good example just to show how how much we have a fascination with secret knowledge. Knowledge that we don't know. Things that, you know, are behind the locked door. Or, you know, what's in the file that says classified on it. And obviously America has a... You know, we have this fascination with you know area Area 51 and UFOs. You know what what does the government know about this stuff? So, nonetheless, this, this this reality that we're actually getting some of this this information revealed to us is is very interesting. But you know, information and knowledge in itself is very interesting. We we don't have access to all knowledge. We don't know all things. Nor do we have the right to know all things. Knowledge is a privilege. It's a privilege to know anything, even if it be a few things. And indeed, knowledge is dangerous. Obviously, you've probably heard the movie line, if, if I tell you I have to kill you, uh, it's probably in a thousand movies. Uh, but knowledge is dangerous, and we, we understand this in the Christian faith as well. James tells us that if you know what you ought to do and you don't do it, it's sin for you. And so when we learn something and when we know something, we are now responsible to act accordingly to what we know. And obviously parents know this idea of information transfer very well. There's things that they don't teach their children when they're young because they're not developed enough. They can't even maybe comprehend these things. So we purposely withhold knowledge from young children for a reason and for a purpose and for their good. So we're very familiar with this idea that we don't know everything, nor do we need to know everything. And often when we dabble in information that's not ours to know or to share, we are swimming in the realm of gossip and slander. So it's best just to somewhat kind of just stay away from the things that aren't our business to know. Now, all this to say that one of my favorite verses in scripture, Deuteronomy 29:29 29, 29, addresses this issue of knowledge. I'm going to read it for you. Follow along in your Bibles. Deuteronomy 29:29. 29, 29, it says, "The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children." Forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So, to give you a little bit of a background information leading up to this verse, uh, we're in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the fifth and final book in what we call the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Now, the book of Genesis obviously is the first book in the Pentateuch and the first book in our Bible. And the book of Genesis documents the origin of the world, the universe, the origin of mankind, and the origin of the nation of Israel through the patriarch Abraham. Now by the end of Genesis, Israel is living in Egypt uh, due to the seven-year famine and in the, in the work of Joseph. And so Israel, the Hebrews, uh, the offspring of Abraham, they're in Israel at the end of Genesis. And at the beginning of Exodus, it, it fast-forwards 400 years, and now they're in slavery under the Egyptians. And you probably know the story well. Moses is called by God, and he leads the people, the Israelites, the Hebrews, out of slavery towards the Promised Land. And before they get to the Promised Land, though, they have to go through the wilderness. And in this wilderness, they are tested and tried by God. And what we see is that they are disobedient, and they turn away from God, and they go after idols. And obviously, the clearest example of this is when they make the golden calf, and they worship the golden calf, While Moses is on the mountain with God. And so what does God do? He swears to these people, these Israelites, these stiff-necked people. He swears to them, you are not going to enter into my rest. You're not going to see the promised land because you have transgressed the covenant. And so all your children who are 20 years and younger, they I will bring into the promised land. They will see the promised land and enter into my, my rest. But you, Israel, who are 20 and over, you will not see it. You will die in this wilderness. And so God leads them around for 40 years in the wilderness until every single one of them, except to Joshua and Caleb, are left. And so that brings us up to the book of Deuteronomy. Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers documented that, that wandering in the wilderness and, and the coming out of slavery in Egypt. And so that brings us to, to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, uh, we're at where we're at in the timeline, the, the Israelites are right at the edge of the Promised Land. All the people 20 and over are now dead and gone. And so the children of those people are left alive and they're adults. And so they're right on the edge, and Moses gives one final address to the people before they take the land that God promised to give them. And so Moses reminds them of God's law. He reminds them how they are to live in the land that God is giving them. He reminds them how they are to live as God's chosen people. Now, this law that God gives them, is a gracious gift. And we often misunderstand the law and the purpose of the law. Sometimes we think that, oh, the Israelites and the Hebrews were given the law so that they could be saved. You know, if they obey the law, they will receive salvation. And it's a works-based salvation. No, that wasn't the case at all. Israel was saved by grace through faith just as we are today. And so we see this clearly with the Exodus. God saves Israel out of bondage before he gives them the law. God brings, calls Abraham by faith before he gives him circumcision. And so we have always been saved by grace through faith. The Israelites were saved by grace through faith, and they were given the law as a gracious gift to allow them to live in peace with a holy and righteous God in the Promised Land. And so Moses reminds the people, though, you've been given this law. By God, and you're just about to go into the promised land, but what you need to do is you need to put this law on your heart. And if you don't put it on your heart, you will not be able to obey it. You will not be able able to obey it unless you put it on your heart. Now that brings us right into our verse, Deuteronomy 29, 29. I'm going to read it again. It says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And so this is what we're going to do this morning, looking at this, this verse. We're going to ask four questions about knowledge. Four questions about knowledge. Because when we read this verse, you see the secret things, this word things, belong to the Lord. But the things that are revealed to us belong to our, us and to our children. The word things really has to do with knowledge. And so we're going to ask four questions about knowledge. The first question is this, what is the source of knowledge? Well, if we look at our texts, the secret things belong to the Lord, our God. God is the source of knowledge. Fundamental to the Christian worldview is that God knows all things. He knows all things, and he is indeed truth. Knowledge finds its origin in God. And we say that God is omniscient, which is the attribute we use to describe his, his knowing all things which means that he knows all things in exhaustive measure. There's nothing that he doesn't know. Now, to say that God is omniscient is not to say that he knows a lot of things or that he knows most things or more things than everybody else, but it, again, is to say that he knows all things. There's nothing, nothing that he does not know or understand. And that's hard for us to comprehend because we are so not that. There is so much that we don't know. Now, it's also important to realize that the attribute of God, his omniscience, is is inextricably tied to another attribute, which is his eternality. We say that God is eternal. And this has to do with his duration of existence. God's duration of existence is eternal, which means he has no beginning, nor will he have an end. He's existed eternally, forever, he has no origin story. He was never created, nor will he never cease. He does not change over time. He's not bound by time. Time is not applied to him. He's constant in his eternal state. Now, this is important as it pertains to knowledge because it means that God knows all things in one moment of vision. God knows all things in one moment of vision. A vision. And let me kind of explain this a little bit and kind of compare it to our, our knowledge and how we experience knowledge and time. Our knowledge as human beings is, is linear. Maybe you've heard this before. Our time, our, our life is like a line. and We're moving one moment to the next on this line going forward. And so what I know today is not what I'll know tomorrow. And what I knew yesterday is not what I know today. It's always changing. I'm either losing knowledge or I'm gaining knowledge. And I'm constantly in fluctuation. I'm constantly changing. I'm gaining and I'm losing. And so there's no way for me to access what I will know in five years now. However, God's knowledge is not like that. And to kind of illustrate this, I'm going to show you this pencil. So this is, this is our life, a timeline. It's linear. It's moving from the eraser towards the tip in one direction. And so if you look at the line perpendicular to your eyesight, you see this linear timeline. But God's knowledge and God's life is as though I tip the pencil and it's parallel with your eyesight. And so God sees everything that's on the timeline in one moment of vision. He sees the point and everything behind the point he sees in one moment. And so where we can only experience life at a moment on the timeline, he experiences it all at once. And so that's what I mean when I say that God sees and knows all things in one moment of vision. Everything is present to him. And in our language, uh, we obviously use past tense and present tense and future tense with our verbs to express our linear life. But God, everything is in present tense. Everything is present to him and to his knowledge. So that means he sees your life in 20 years. He sees it now. He sees the life of Moses 3,500 3, years ago as he's writing Deuteronomy. He sees that now. Now. Presently. And so the events that you read about in the Bible, God sees now, presently to him. Which also means that if you're in Christ, your life in the new heavens, in the new earth, he sees now, presently to his mind. And if we want to go even deeper and really kind of blow our minds uh, before you ever existed, you existed in the mind and in the knowledge of God. And that is incredible. And that is the God that we worship. That is the God of the Bible. It is a God who knows all things exhaustively. Now, I briefly mentioned that God's knowledge is infinite. Again, his, his knowledge isn't just a, a fixed timeline. He, he sees everything infinitely back and infinitely forward. It's just infinity. His knowledge is infinite. And we can think of like a, a storage device, like an SD card or a hard drive, which is not infinite. It's finite. It has a capacity. That's us. We're like the SD card that has a capacity. I have an external hard drive on my on my desk in my office. It's four terabytes, which seems like a, a lot of storage, but with four K video, it, it kind of gets taken up pretty quick. But we're like that. We have a, we have a capacity. We have a limit. We're finite in knowledge, but God is infinite. He's unlimited, or we are limited. And so when we compare our knowledge to God's knowledge, it's like comparing apples to oranges. It just doesn't work. You know, you can think of, you know, we're trying to comprehend the knowledge of God, and we go, oh, God's knowledge is like the ocean. It's vast, it's deep, it's wide, and we're like one drop in that ocean. But even that is wrong, because the ocean is still finite and limited and has a capacity so when we compare our knowledge to his, it's like comparing apples to oranges. It just doesn't work. It's in a whole different category. It's in an eternal category where we are not. And so this should humble us. This should humble us. It's easy for us to get prideful about what we know. Oh, I got this degree. I went to this school. I've read this many books. Da-da-da-da-da. I know so much. But in comparison to God, we know nothing. We know nothing. And you know, to even humble us more, what this means is that there is going to be an infinite amount of information and knowledge that we will never know. An infinite amount of things that we cannot know. That is humbling. And that's really what we see in the book of Job. If you've read the book of Job, you know, Job you know, gets inf- afflicted with all this stuff, you know, loses his family, loses his health. And all his friends are like, curse God and die. Uh, this is happening to you because you probably sinned. And, but Job was a righteous man, and he didn't. But he, he wanted to question God and see why this happened to him. And so we see God speak to Job in Job 38. I'm going to read the first 18 verses of Job 38. Uh, and, and God puts Job in his place as it pertains to this issue of knowledge. Listen to the words of Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst open? burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come, and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began, and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth, and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken." Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. And obviously, Job does not know any of it. Job is humbled. God knows all things. God knows these things. And that brings us right into our second question that we're going to ask about knowledge. And it's this, what are the types of knowledge? What are the types of knowledge? So let's listen to our verse again, Deuteronomy twenty nine, twenty nine It says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So two types of knowledge should stand out to you. Two types of knowledge. And the first one is this, secret knowledge. Secret knowledge. What is secret knowledge? Uh, secret knowledge is knowledge that is secret, uh, but that's not really a helpful definition. Um, secret knowledge is knowledge that you don't know, uh, that you that's not available to know. I mean, and again, this is this is kind of hard for us to comprehend. Uh, the The file that says classified on it is infinite. There are an infinite number of things that are contained within this category or this type of secret knowledge. And so I'm not going to be able to say much about it because I don't know (laughs) what secret knowledge is. If I did, it wouldn't be secret anymore. But there's a few categories that we can kind of help us kind of think about what may be contained within this, you know, type of secret knowledge. And the first one, I think, is this. I I would say that part of what is in secret knowledge is the answer to theological paradoxes. And if you've read your Bible and you read through it, you start to maybe see things that seem to be a little bit contradictory, One of the ones, one of these things that people, that is probably the most common, is people ask the question, you know, how can God be a good and loving God and merciful God, and yet evil exists? And so we see in the scripture, we'll read through the scripture, and we see that God is loving, God is holy, God is righteous, God is just, God hates evil. The Bible says that God did not create evil nor author it. Evil is the opposite of God. Evil can't even be in the presence of God. He hates it. So we see that in the scripture, and yet we also see in the scripture that God ordained its existence, that he allows it to exist. And so we, think, we might think, oh, that kind of seems contradictory. How is that possible? Um, and the how is what I would say is secret knowledge. My mind cannot comprehend, nor does it need to comprehend, how that is possible. The why of evil's, evil's existence is very clear in Scripture. The why is that so that God may come down in the form of a man and suffer under the hands of evil men for us in our place so that he may display his grace and his mercy and his love for those who do not deserve it. That is the why, the how, I think, would be in this category of secret knowledge. Another one that I think falls in this category of of secret knowledge is uh, what's God's will for my life? Type of questions. And often when you ask that question or you hear people ask that question, usually what they mean is, you know, I want to know is it God's will for my life to marry so and so or to move to this city or to get this job or whatever it might be? And so that is, those are things that we don't know. We can't know. I can't know what lies in the future for me, who I will marry or where I will be in 10 or 15 years. Only God knows that. That's secret knowledge. Now, the Bible, if you want to know the answer to what's God's will for your life, the Bible is very clear on that. I think of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, it just plain out says, Now this is the will of God for your life, your sanctification, that you may obtain or abstain from sexual immorality. That's very clear. What's God's will for your life? That you do know that you be holy and blameless, that you be obedient to the word of God that you put off sinful behavior and sinful passions and sinful desires and put on righteousness and holiness and be conformed to the image of God. But again, we're not going to stand like Job did before God and, and say, you know, show me your knowledge, You know, tell me these things. We don't have the right. And Job quickly realized that he did not have the right either. He wanted to die when he was in the presence of God. And so again this reveals our pride. We need to be people who, like Paul in the in Romans chapter eleven, verses thirty-three through thirty-six says says this Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways, for who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That needs to be our heart. We need to have that type of heart towards knowledge and towards God. Now that brings us to our second type of knowledge, and that is revealed knowledge, or what we call revelation. And there's two types of revelation, revealed knowledge. The first is general, the second is special. Our text specifically is addressing special revelation, uh, but just, I'm just going to give you a quick review of general revelation, though it's not in our text. Uh, general revelation is knowledge revealed through creation, through God's handiwork, what he has made. Psalm 19 wonderfully describes general revelation. It says this, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. So God gives us knowledge of his glory through what he has made. We call that general revelation. And again, it's not communicated by words. It's not propositional. We look at this creation, we look at the sky and the trees. We look at each other, and we know something about God. We know his glory. Another verse, a uh, passage of Scripture that is, really helps us uh, understand this thing of general re- revelation is Romans 1, 18 through 23. I'm going to read this passage. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so, again, what we see here is that general revelation gives us information and knowledge and truth about God's attributes. As the text says, His eternal power and divine nature. We know these things. They're clearly perceived by us, God's eternal power and divine nature. But what do we do with this knowledge? What does the text say that every sinner born into this world will do with this knowledge? They will suppress this knowledge in unrighteousness. They suppress it in unrighteousness. It's clearly perceived. They see it so clearly. But they suppress it because they want to pursue their sin. And so it's it's like a beach ball. Think of a beach ball. And you're in a lake. And you try to push this beach ball underneath the water. And all it wants to do is rise to the surface. And so you have to actively suppress it and push it down under the water. The moment you let go of it, it's going to come up. And that's like the knowledge of God in creation. It's so clearly perceived. It just wants to be out on top of the water for all to see. And we take that beach ball and we take this knowledge and we suppress it and we push it under the water. Because we want nothing to do with God in our sinful nature. We actively suppress it in righteousness. And when we do that, What do we do? We exchange the glory of God for created things, idols. We become self-worshippers. And so general revelation is sufficient for two things. It's sufficient to reveal to us the glory of God in creation. And it's also sufficient to condemn us. Because we, in our sinful nature, almost certainly suppress it. So it's sufficient to reveal God in creation, and it's sufficient to condemn us. It's not sufficient to save us. That brings us to our second type of revelation, and that is special revelation. And that's what our text is talking about. It says that we may do all the words of this law. Law is special revelation. The Hebrew word used here is Torah. Uh, Torah is often used to uh, talk about the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Um, It can be translated as instruction or teaching, but most often it's translated as law. And so the law, the revealed word of God, the Bible, the scripture is special revelation. And special revelation, unlike general revelation, is propositional in nature. It contains words. Words are are strung together to form phrases that form sentences, to form paragraphs and chapters and books. And, And these strung together words communicate meaning and knowledge through propositions. And so God communicates and gives us knowledge through propositions, through the word, the spoken and the written word. And special revelation informs us about the things that deal with salvation and faith. Maybe you've heard the statement before that the word of God is sufficient for all things pertaining to life and godliness. Now, likely the the most succinct description of the nature of special revelation is given in 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 17. I'm going to read that for you. Paul is writing to Timothy. He says this, But as for you, he's talking to Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, that's the Old Testament, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture... "...is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work." So all Scripture is breathed out by God. God breathed. It comes from His mouth, which means it carries with it His perfection and His power and His authority. That's why we say that the Word of God is inerrant. It's without error. It's infallible. It's not false. It's true. And the Word of God is sufficient for two things. Sufficient to make you wise for salvation, as Paul said to Timothy, and sufficient to equip you for every good work. Which means that it's sufficient to sanctify you and make you like Christ, to equip you for everything that you need to do in obedience to God in this life. It's sufficient for you, and you need it. Now that brings us to our third question that we're going to ask about knowledge, and that is, What is the duration of knowledge? This is going to be very brief. I look at our text again. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. And so, as God is eternal, so his knowledge is eternal. He knows all things, and so that knowledge will never cease. It will never end. It will never pass away. And Jesus says this so clearly in Matthew 24, verse 35. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So our, our Bibles, the words, of, the words of God, they will not pass away. They are eternal as he is eternal. They last forever. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Very brief, not much more to say. Which brings us right into our last question that we're going to ask about knowledge. And it's this. What is the purpose of knowledge? What is the purpose of knowledge? And this is where uh, this text gets applied to our lives. So listen closely. Why did God reveal himself to us? Why did he give us information about him? Why does this belong to us and to our children forever? Why? That is the question. That is one of the most important questions you will ever ask in this life. And the text tells us very clearly, the text says, so that we may do all the words of this law. God gives us his word so that we may be, Obedient. He wants obedience. So special revelation, the Bible, is not exhaustive. It's not exhaustive. It's not exhaustive knowledge. Everything there is to know is not contained within this book. But what we do have, we need. It's 66 books. Most people try to read it in about a year. You read two to three chapters a day, 10, 15 minutes, and you're going to read this whole thing in a year. And uh, a famous theologian named Marcy Sproul, who passed away a handful of years ago, when he uh, came to Christ and was converted to Christ in college, he read the whole Bible in two weeks. The whole Bible in two weeks. All of this in two weeks. And there's many people who have actually memorized the entire Bible. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, they would memorize the whole Old Testament. And there's plenty of people who memorize the whole New, whole New Testament. And so if, if if you can memorize this, you can work hard enough and you can memorize this entire Bible, it certainly is pretty manageable it's pretty manageable god hasn't given us everything he's given us what we need what we need to know for what purpose for salvation and for obedience that we may obey god maybe you can think of when jesus is getting tempted by satan in the in the wilderness jesus goes man does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of god every word not some of the words not most of the words, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, all of this He gives us. This it belongs to us. We need it all, and here it is, sitting in our laps, in our hands, on this pulpit. I'm sure we have copies upon copies of the Word of God at home on our shelves. We got Bibles everywhere in America. They're everywhere. We can, you know, man, somebody offers us a Bible in the stream. Like I got too many of them. Just give them to somebody else and we got Bibles everywhere. They're sitting on our laps and in our hands. We have the word of life. We possess it. It's ours. God has given it to us. It belongs to us and to our children. And our job is to know it. Our job is to do it. And our job is to teach it to the next generation, to teach it to our children so that they can teach it to their children and that it can go forward in time. Now, our job is not just to be hearers of the word. Paul says this in Romans 2. James talks about this. Not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. God gives us the word to do again. He gave us his word to obey it. It's not an option to set aside the word and to pick and choose what you want to obey or what you like is to disregard it, actually. If you believe some of this, but not all of this, it's disregard all of it. Take it or leave it. Take all of it or, or leave it. And often you hear people say, well, you know, I like the parts of the Bible that talk about God's love and his mercy and his forgiveness, but I don't really care for the parts that talk about his wrath and his justice. I don't really like the parts that talk about hell. That makes me feel uncomfortable. And I don't know if I really believe that. If God could really do that, put people in hell. And I'm not really sure what I think about, you know, the Bible's condemnation of homosexuality. Yeah, yeah, I just, I just don't like that. I just want to get rid of that. And, you know, some people even did do that. You think of Thomas Jefferson. He actually cut out parts of his Bible that he didn't like and that he disagreed with. And so he had this Bible that was just fragments. To do that is to disbelieve all of it. Take it all or take none of it. And so such talk of, you know, not this, but this, is is really talk of nonbelievers. Because, again, we need all of the Bible. All of the Bible has been given to us. And everything... Is for a purpose in your life. Every word is for a purpose to sanctify you, to make you holy as Christ is holy. To parse out the scriptures and what you like and what you don't like is to reject God. And this is really the Great Commission. Think of the Great Commission. Jesus resurrected, is about to ascend to the Father in heaven. And he tells his disciples one last thing before he ascends. Their mission, the life that they are to live, what are they to do now? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, and this is often translated as obey all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What are we to do? We are to teach them to observe and to obey all that Christ has commanded. All of it. Not some of it, not the parts you like, all of it. It's very manageable. Very manageable. It's ours. So the words of life are in your lap, and what are you going to do with it? Now, here's the irony of the nation of Israel. Back to Deuteronomy and the nation of Israel. They're right at the edge of the promised land. Right at the edge. They had God's law. They had it. They possessed it. It even says in the next chapter over, it actually says in Deuteronomy, at, the, at chapter 30 or 31, it says, and Moses wrote this all down. They had it. They went into the promised land with the law, with the word of God. And he says, but you've got to put it on your heart. You've got to put it on your heart. And if you don't, you're going to turn away from the Lord. You're going to transgress the covenant. So what did the Israelites do? They didn't put it on their heart. And they transgressed the covenant. They turned away from God. They were brought into exile for their disobedience. But then we have a a promise of a new covenant. Given in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Listen to this. It says, This, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor or each, or each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least to them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So we have the promise of the new covenant, where God will put his law on their heart. And we are new covenant people. This is describing us, our state right now. We are not like the Israelites, where they had to put it on their heart. No, God puts it on our heart for us, so that we may obey it and be obedient. And this is good news. This is great news, because we, just like Israel, were born into sin, separated from God, and deserving of His eternal wrath. We, just like Israel, were people who suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. But God, being rich in His mercy, sent His Son, Jesus Christ, who became a man who lived a perfect life and died on our behalf. And Christ obeyed the law from the heart, something that the Israelites could not do, something that we could not do. He did it. He obeyed the law with his heart. He was perfect, the perfect man. And then he went to the cross, and what did he do? He took our sin, our sin, my sin, and he took it on his shoulders on the cross, and he faced the wrath of a holy God In our place. So that we would not have to face that wrath. We all should go to hell. And face the wrath of God for our sin. Christ took that wrath. Faced it in our place. So that we would not have to. Not only that. But he lived that life that we could not live. He earned a righteousness that we could not earn. He did what we could not do. And what the Israelites could not do. And that's why the new covenant is such an amazing promise. We're now in grace. Christ did what we could not do But unlike the Israelites, when we trust in Christ through faith, repent of our sins, He gives us His Holy Spirit, and He seals us with the Spirit of God, and the Spirit writes the law on our heart. And so now we have been given a new mind, a new heart, a new will and a new desire to obey and follow and seek Christ with our whole being. And this is the good news of the gospel, the new covenant and the blood of Christ. And so if you find yourself here this morning, you have not repented of your sin and turned to Christ in faith, trusted in him for salvation, today is the day for salvation. The author of Hebrews talks about this. Don't wait another moment. You don't know if you will have tomorrow. You, You don't know if you will have another 10 minutes. Repent today. Repent now. Now is the moment for salvation. Turn to Christ. You have no other option. He is a good Savior. And he will not, certainly will not turn you away. But for those who know Christ here this morning, this is my word for you. Let us walk in obedience. We've been given this word, just like the Israelites were. We've been given this good, good word so that we may be obedient, so that we may do it. And we can do it now because we have the law on our hearts through the Spirit of God that dwells in us. So let us go out and do it. Let us be a holy people. Let us be salt and light to this world. Let us follow Christ and follow his word. Let us pray. Lord, again, we are humbled. We're humbled by your your vastness. By your glory, by your holiness, by your righteousness, by your omniscience, Lord. You know all things. You know our heart, Lord. You see us. You see all of us. You know us better than we know ourselves, Lord. And, Lord, you chose to save us. What an amazing thing. You came down and took on the form of a man and lived the life we could not live, Lord. And you offer us salvation and eternal life. Your faith. Lord, would we be grateful. And, Lord, would we be grateful that you give us a word that you give us your word, your holy, perfect word, so that we may know how to live as God's people. Lord, would we follow it with our lives? Would we trust it? Would we eat it as Christ says? Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, Lord. So would we have that heart to eat the word because we need it? Lord, I pray all these things in your name. Amen.